Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So we have a great entrepreneur today, someone that has built, scaled companies in the past, and I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit, you know, especially when it comes to operating companies in the Valley, in one of those hot, you know, hubs of, of startups versus perhaps, you know, doing it outside of it and also how you conduct yourself and how you're looking through the execution. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Johan Adby. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. So originally born there in uh, in Sweden, in 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 you. So uh, tell us about life growing up there. Oh, it wasn't much happening there. It was a population of 10,000 people. But I started there and uh, I loved the place. But, but I pretty, as soon as I went into the studies, I, le I left you and uh, I moved to Gothenburg to, to take my master's in mathematics and physics there. But before, like, really thinking about the the whole studying approach, I mean, you you were quite a competitive cyclist. I mean, we're talking about 10 years competing, you know, in a very, was it like professional or almost professional or what was what was that? Yeah, I would call it almost professional because I got, unfortunately, I got injured when I was 18. So I had to do knee surgery. And the thing you start to, to train too, too, too much when you're too young. And so that was basically the end of uh, my, my cycling career. But I still love cycling. And now, now I just do it to keep, uh, to keep in shape and so I can continue to eat some good food. I still love it. But I, I switched from road biking to mountain biking. Good stuff. Good stuff. So, so obviously that, that got you into your next thing, you know, kind of like reshifting gears. And then you went at it with math and physics, you know, in terms of degree. But... But eventually, you had, you ended up coming across uh, artificial intelligence, which obviously back then nobody was not as trendy as as it is today. Now it seems that everyone in their mother is using AI for something. And uh, back then, you know, it was it was quite a a unique type of thing. So how do you how did AI really come across your radar, and and how did you go about it? I think when I finished my master's, I always loved mathematics and physics, and and. I, 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 I saw even though the computer power was, this is now dating 15, 20, year, 20 years ago. So, of course, the computing power was not nearly as, 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 as massive as it is today. But I really, I'm, I, I'm, I like theories of doing the mathematical models behind AI. This, the, the things were starting to cook back then, even though it was definitely not as sexy or not very many people talked about AI back in the days. 
but uh, I, I, I love that stuff. So I, I did it. I definitely didn't do it for joining any kind of hype because there was there was zero hype back then in AI. So it actually was for a genuine interest in mathematics. But it was more like applied mathematics, and then it then it became AI. And you did quite a, a little bit of jumping from one place to another because everything started in Sweden for you. Then you went to Norway, then Sweden, and then Santa Fe, New Mexico. I mean, what a what a ride! So how do you land in Santa Fe, New Mexico? I think it was because my 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 professor he was on the at the external faculty at the Santa Fe Institute which is this fantastic place. I think they have three or four Nobel Prize winners on the faculty over there. But uh, so he managed to get me in there. They took 20 people globally. They accepted, and I don't ask me how, but I ended up being one of the 20 they accepted that year over there. And one of the 20, but you ended up not following course because you went at it with <laughs> starting your own company. So tell us about what happened there. Because over there, I was, I was, back in the days, I was, I was, I was, I was super young and super naive. I was 23 something. Now I'm just naive. But uh, because some of the professors over there, they were not just fantastic in what they did, but also some of them started a couple of companies and some of them, not all of them, but some of them quite successfully so. So I thought, hey, I can do this. So let, let's continue my PhD. And as a side gig, why, why don't I start a company based on everything I know about AI, which was starting to take off then? And of course, that didn't play out the way I the way I thought it would, because I never finished my PhD. But the company I started, that that one took off. So that was basically first I put in my PhD studies on the shelf, but but I don't think I will ever uh, pick it up, pick it up again. I think that was that was the end of my career in academia. And this was Tific, the company. So, so what was what was what was Tific about? I mean, what what was the business model of Tific? So, my my idea with Tific was, I, I wanted to solve all the world's computer problems using AI, crowdsourcing a ton of kind of uh, computer related data. And when the computer, the Windows-based computer crashed, I would have all the configurations of millions and tens of millions or hundreds of millions of computer. And finding the common denominator and automatically figuring out what was the root cause for the problem and fix it. And of course, that was incredibly hard, but it's managed to actually reduce the support volume for some of the big players like Microsoft and, and Symantec and some others at a very, very large scale. So it had some value, but only at a very, very grand scale. So, so in this case, I mean, you guys raised quite a bit of money uh, and that ended up becoming you know, a quite a quite a successful uh, outcome, no, an exit. How how much capital did you guys raise today? You know, with that company. Oh, how much money? Maybe fifty million or something like that. We didn't we didn't need to raise that money because this was it was it was a little bit before B two B, so it it wasn't really a SaaS solutions, but it was more of an enterprise solution. So we managed to land land quite big deals. So we were not not from the get go, of course, but a couple of years into this, we managed to become cash flow positive. So we didn't need to raise that one. When we sold the business, when the business was acquired, we had 21% EBITDA. So we were actually cash flow positive, which is which is almost unheard of these days. Uh, Fishbrain today is not profitable. I hear you. So so tell us because on 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 Tific, I mean, you were at it, you know, for about 11 years, you know, give or take from start to finish, you know. So so I'm sure it was a remarkable journey. But you guys ended up going through an M&A, you know, through the company getting acquired. So how was that process like? So tell us how, how did it happen and how did it come about? How, how big perhaps what the, was the company at that point? You know, tell us about this process. 
so the process was it during the we got some good traction. I, I lived in Silicon Valley back then. I drove sales and marketing. We still have R and D and operations and finance in Sweden, but we had sales and marketing in this in the states in Silicon Valley because the, the big clients like Microsoft and Symantec and the others they were they were based in the states. So we we get an offer, and then uh, a company wanted to acquire us. It, so that was inbound. We were not in a, in the process of actually selling the company. And during that time, we managed to land a deal with Microsoft. And since we did it for the Windows operating system, we didn't think it it would be any better than this. That would probably be the peak of peak of TIFIC. So, and since we had an offer on the table, we used a banker, and we went through a process. We have a, com- a couple of companies bidding 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 for it, and the the buyer uh, ended up being Plum Choice in Massachusetts on the East Coast. So, so what was that process like? I mean. You guys engaged um, an advisor. You went through it. I mean, for the people that are listening that are wondering, like, how one of those M&A process, you know, like, how do they really work? I mean, any 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 points pointers, or could you make us an insider on how that process was for you guys? I think it was. You, should, you can never say it was frictionless because it it's it, it took about three four months, and the process was extremely intense. They did. Uh, they did heavy DD on the company. We want. We needed to recover papers that agreements that, uh, as you said, we we've been in business for eleven years, and of course we don't. We didn't have the first first agreements and stuff like that. We we needed to more or less find and collect everything, and I mean everything. So it the process was quite super intense, and at the same time we needed to to have a successful quarter. So this is something I'll tell all entrepreneurs that when you're in the sales process, that'd probably be the worst time ever for you because not only do you need to have a great bit, but it typically takes three, four months. There are basically very few shortcuts. Yes, you hear about some companies that get a, get acquired in two weeks or something like that, but those are those are really outliers. The typical process takes three to four months. And so you have to do all this work, the DD for the buyer, and it really comes on top of your regular business. You need to make sure that that quarter is is super successful while you do the other work with with the DD. That was probably one of the most intense work periods in my entire life. So then, in this case, I mean, you close the deal, and you end up uh, joining the company that acquired you guys, which was Plum Choice, and you end up moving to Boston, and you worked for quite a bit for this company. I mean, a year and a half. So how was that vesting and resting? period of time like it was was wasn't that much resting because i had (laughs) i had high intentions with this i liked the buyers i wanted wanted it to be also for the people that i brought with me i wanted it making sure that they were finding a good home with the buyer and that they appreciate our product got appreciated they got the attention i believe it, it it deserved and I was on the management team of the buyers. I was also involved in strategy for the entire company. So uh, it, it, it wasn't that I sold the business and then a couple of weeks later I could check out. That that that's not. But it, but again, I knew also very early that I didn't. My lock-in. The reason I stayed for a year and a half is also because that's that's basically how long my lock-in period was. And I felt pretty. I knew pretty much pretty early that this is not where I want to end my life. I'm an entrepreneur. This this was it was a big company that acquired my business, and I really like companies when you're in the 
innovation phase and you're growing 50, 100% per year or something like not when you're growing five to 10 years and it, 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 it's all about operational efficiency. And if you, if you can improve the bottom line with a half a percentage points, that, that's, that's a huge win. That's not really the phase where I'm, where I'm at my best. I'm at my best where I would say that when, yeah, when you're still at a double the revenue every year and there's still, still a lot of innovation that has to be done. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in this case, then, I mean, what was that process like when you eventually, you know, decide that uh, it's time for you to pack things up and, and, and go at it again? Since, since I'm, I have my background in mathematics, I, I wanted this to be, uh, it was a pretty, pretty analytical process for me. So I didn't do this one ad hoc because I had a year and a half to actually think about what should be my next gig. So I, I started to think about what, what, what are the macro trends that I believe in. And of course, it's not that I have a crystal ball that the tier one Silicon Valley investors like a Sequoia or Greylock or Goldman Sachs or Andreessen Horowitz don't have. But, uh, but you have to believe in something, right? So I thought quite, quite long about that. And I came to two conclusions. This is now seven years ago. And I think they're pretty obvious today, but it definitely weren't seven years ago. And a lot of people told me that Fishbane will never work when I started Fishbane. And the first one is, I think if you have a passion for something, doesn't matter what it is, whether this is cooking or drinking wine or photography or whatnot, I think you have much better engagement if you're in a group of like-minded versus a group of friends. Because if you post anything specific on like a, a Facebook or an Instagram or even TikTok these days, you get very little engagement on any type of specialty content. And there's a swipe behavior in the feed so that this, these platforms are not good for evergreen content either. So that was the first. My second is, I think there's a lot of fantastic op business opportunities still left when it comes to crowdsourcing of data. And of course, like in Facebook, they crowdsource a lot of data and they use it for targeting ads. And it's a fantastic business proposition. If you look at the quarterly report, they do pretty okay. But personally, I'm much more like companies like Waze, where you crowdsource the traffic information and deliver a great service for the customers. So, so based on that, I actually wrote a blog post saying I thought there would be an opportunity, business opportunity for vertical social networks, and especially for the big passions, hobby, hobbies, where you can actually crowdsource this data and deliver a service that you could not deliver if you don't have this data. And this was pub published back in the days by this Silicon Valley tech, tech blog, Pando Daily. And I got a shitload of feedback. I got a ton of feedback. I got feedback from Dreesen, Mark, Mark and Dreesen himself, from Sequoia, from Greylock, basically many of the investors in Facebook. Say, yeah, this, this will probably happen, not replacing general social, because there will always be a need for sharing party pictures and, <laughs> and, kittens, and kittens and whatnot. But uh, I got great feedback. So based on that, I decided to, to, to create one. It wasn't obvious that, that I would go for fishing, but that's a different story. So then let's talk about why going for fishing and why going for fish brain. So, and of course, having been a, a competitive cyclist, I looked into doing this for cycling first, but I decided not to pursue cycling because when I looked at the numbers, it's not super big. Yes, it's big, but it's not, it's not gigantic. It's not super global. And there was already a company that started a couple of years uh, before called Strava. And they are actually quite, they were quite good. They're really good today. They were pretty okay back in the days, but it was mostly because I didn't see the market being that big. And also when it comes to Strava, they have expanded beyond cycling. So now it's, 
endurance sport in general. So they are they have running and skiing and basically all sports on the platform today. And now it's it it, it it's a really good company today. So the, this is this more or less happened by accident. I because I was I was when doing research on hobbies, I stumbled upon an article. I believe it was in Forbes listing the the world's ten largest hobbies. And this is by spending. And guess what? Sport fishing is number one. There are more people running, but runners they don't spend nearly as much money as as anglers do. So uh, having being born in this little town called you in Sweden, I have been fishing since I was a kid. It's not my biggest passion, but I certainly know how to fish. I love to fish. I love to fly fish. So I I could really. Uh, think like anglers but still despite that i spent quite a bit of time doing research and avid anglers and see whether there was a business opportunity here and 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 i thought I, th- I thought there was so what was that moment where you decided that they this made sense to it made sense to go forward with fish brain i think that that moment was when i interviewed like a lot of i don't know the exact number maybe as 50 avid anglers more or less asking them the same question when, where, when, where, and how would you fish? And if I get, since I got, diff, I got 50 different answers here, I thought this is exactly like waste. One person can only drive that much. One pe- person can only fish that much. If I somehow managed to crowdsource this, this sport fishing data and make it extremely granular and apply my, my favorite machine learning on top of this data set, I was convinced I can de- deliver a much better fishing forecast than the best angler in the world. Which, which is how we basically how we monetize that fishman today. But everyone told me this ain't going to work. That's this is not going to work. So then tell us about you know just so that the people listening get it. What ended up being the business model with Fishbrain and how do you guys make money? So it's 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 a community for people that love fishing. So people are on the platform to uh, to brag about their catches. So they log their catches on the Fishbrain platform. And when they do that, similar to waste, we crowdsource, we gather a lot of data. So we have not just the location and species, we also have the, the weather condition, was it sunny, was it cloudy, uh, humidity, air temperature, wind speed, wind direction, tide, moon phase, 25 something parameters in every single catch. And then we apply machine learning based on this data set to give users a recommendation of when, where, and how to fish. So we have the community. Then we have these utility services that makes an angler a better angler. And that we we, uh, we charge the customer. It's a subscription model. So it's free to join. It's a freemium model. So it's free to join uh, Fishpaint and start logging your catches and take place in the community, uh, engage on the platform. But if you want to have access to any kind of uh, utility features telling you when, where, and how to fish, it's a subscription. You have to pay for that. So that's how we monetize today. So then in this case, I mean, what were, because obviously this was your second company, you know, in your first business, you were at it for about 11 years. So you learned quite a bit, especially when it came to, to team building. No? So how did you go about building your team around this company? Oh, it's so much, everything, a lot of things are much, much easier the second time than the first one, because you've done so many mistakes the first time. So right. uh, that's not saying I still make mistakes at Fishman. Trust me about that. I think all entrepreneurs will make mistakes because if you don't, you're not taking big enough risk. Yeah. But the 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 biggest difference here is I try to get a, a bit more senior people. You know, when you're young, you think you know everything, but then then you realize you don't. And right. and especially in the second company, you, you realize there are so many so many things you don't know. 
So I brought in, uh, expanded the management team much earlier than in the, than in the previous company. I, I brought in more experts, of course, depe- depending on how much funding you have, but trying to bring in senior, senior people er- earlier than I did in the first company. So, so, so I definitely scaled this one much, much, much faster than I scaled the first company. And it's definitely not just because of me. It's because I've, I've brought in people that are way smarter than I am, and, and which is not that hard, earlier in the company. And, and obviously you had the exposure already to having, you know, experienced Silicon Valley and, and building and scaling in the U.S. Why did you decide to stay there in Stockholm, you know, and execute versus doing it in, in the Valley where probably you, you had better access to capital or to, or to human resources? Yeah, that definitely wasn't, wasn't an easy decision for me. It was, I, I could have easily tossed a coin because I don't think to, in today's world, it's not a place that you have to start for a company to be successful. Uh, but I decided to go with Stockholm for a couple of, couple of reasons. First of all, it's, and I think it's obvious, more obvious seven years later than it was when I made that decision seven years ago. But it's it's definitely less competitive when it comes to getting a talented employees because you want to have the best people working with the company. And if you're competing against like an Apple and Tesla and Google that can pay astronomical salary, you, you can never compete with the salary when you're a startup. You, that, 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 that's not the currency you have. You have to bring them on from on, on the vision. But I think that's actually much easier. It's getting increasingly hard also in Stockholm because today you have a Spotify, you have a Klarna, you have a Nysdettle, they got acquired by PayPal, you have King that got acquired by Activision Blizzard. So it is, it's getting increasingly competitive. But I really, what I like here, people in, I would say in Scandinavia in general, they're super good when it comes to product. Not when it comes to sales and marketing. Swedes, we suck at marketing. We, we do. Uh, no matter whether we're talking about the Spotify or I would say everything, you have to bring more or less bring in Americans for my CMO at the company, Lisa, she's American, she's brilliant. A Swede would never have been able to do that for sure. But in the early days, it's it's a lot about building the right product, making sure, I hate the word product market fit, but at least getting a product that's good enough that actually some, some cohort users will appreciate and continue to use. And I think we are really good when it comes to product and engineering. At the later stage, then you add sales and marketing on top of that. But I think this is a really good place. And also, we also have a long heritage when it comes to design. And we are a consumer-facing company, and design is so important today. It's not just about it's not just about delivering the best feature sets. It's also about UI UX, making sure that design is in place, that it's actually user-friendly, that user quickly in the journey, understands the product and they can use it. Spotify, they spend quite a bit on UI UX. It's not just about the feature set and the content. It's also a product that's, that's, that starts immediately and it's, it's user-friendly, it's easy to get started with. A hundred percent. And in, in your guys' case, how much capital have you guys raised today? In total, we raised a little bit over $70 million. 70 million. I mean, that's uh, quite a lot of millions, especially for being in Sweden. Johan, so so how, how do you go about, I mean, what's the approach perhaps, you know, on raising the money, you know, there versus, mm-hmm. you know, in the U.S.? I think it was, the way it looks today in this ecosystem, if there's enough capital available locally for, say, a seed round and, and even for an A round, 
But then when, when we hit our B round, we had to look outside Stockholm. Because also what we are building, we're basically building a vertical social network. And now we launched a marketplace on top of this. It's high risk. And uh, I still believe that Silicon Valley investors are the ones that has the biggest appetite for, they can write bigger checks and they have bigger appetite for risk than, than, in, than in Europe. So when we raised our Series B, I had to look outside Scandinavia. I even had to look outside London. So, I, so when I brought in, in my Series B, I managed to get SoftBank on board. Uh, and I also managed to get B Capital on board with the Facebook co-founder Eduardo Severin as one of the uh, LPs in the B Capital fund. And he's a huge, big believer in social uh, going vertical and also commerce going vertical, but especially social going vertical. So when we came to our CRSB, I had to start raising money from outside Scandinavia and also and, even outside Europe. And when raising money, you know, and for a social network, and then as, as you were alluding to now with the marketplace built on top of that, what were some of the expectations that you were encountering from one financing cycle to another one? I'm sure that especially you failed a very different lens or a different way of analyzing the opportunity when you were dealing with more of the international you know, type of, of investors. Yeah, and also we've basically been through three different stages uh, in the company. So fundraising has been different for different stages because we, we also had like Spotify, we had competition when we started. We were not the first fishing app. We had 15 competitors, American companies when we started. So we couldn't monetize first because there are very strong network effects in what we do. We, need, we knew we needed to be the first one to hit the tipping point. Hence, we didn't monetize for the first three, four years. No, no money at all. And then all, when, when the VC looked at Fishbank, it was all about retention. It was all daily, daily or monthly. Uh, how, how, do they, how do they retain? What do they do on the platform? It was, the, those were all, the lens they looked at then was all engagement metrics. And that was during a time when it was actually possible to raise money on engagement metrics. It's super hard today. Uh, it's really, really hard to raise money simply on engagement metrics today. When we come, when it came to our Sears B, then we had launched a subscription. We had some subscription data, so that was more on okay, what's the conversion from an installed user to registered user to a paying subscriber, and what does churn look like? We didn't have that much churn data, but I think we had a twelve months or something of churn data. So that was more about the 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 economics of of the subscription, but it still had. They also, of course, looked at the engagement numbers. When we raised our round now, which was 32 million, that was for basically building out the the second revenue stream, which is the marketplace, which we we had launched before we raised the 32 million dollar round. But we have very, very early data. It's not a, it's not a big business for us, but it's 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 growing nicely. So that was based on subscription growing, uh, positive unit economics on the subscription side but adding a second revenue stream that we are in the process of building out and scaling right now. So as you guys are thinking now about the future and what things hold and what's in store, you know, if you had to go to sleep tonight and, and let's say you wake up in a world five years later where the vision of Fishbrain is fully realized, what does that world look like? So for me, my vision has always been to become the platform for the industry. Today, we are an app for anglers. And I think that's where we needed to start because that's basically how we crowdsource all the data. And But my vision for the company is really we want to be the platform that basically 
the entire industry is using. And we're definitely getting a step closer to that now when we launched the marketplace. We have 300 brands, uh, the, some, most of the biggest brands in the industry. They are on the platform. So they are also starting to use Fishpaint as, 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 a, as, as a tool for them as well. We just announced that we have a partnership with Garmin and they're the leading manufacturer of marine electronics. So now we collaborate with, uh, with the hardware. We, because Fishpaint is a company, we will ne- I will never, I know nothing about hardware. So we, we're not going to build hardware at Fishpaint. But of course, anglers, they use a lot of hardware. They use electronic devices. And I want to be the platform that integrates with, with, with the hardware. So the journey, and this will take, still take time and, and cost a ton of money, still a lot of money to actually go from being an app to become the platform for the entire industry. And also today from, we haven't really started with geographical expansion yet. We, are, we have 82% of our revenue and MAUs, they are in North America. And fishing is very global. It's big in Brazil. It's big in most countries in Europe. It's big in Russia, China, Australia. So it's very, very global. So we, we, we definitely need to start with ge- geographical expansion as well. So let's say I put you into a time machine, Johan, and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time to that moment where you were in Santa Fe, you know, like taking a look at, hey, look at all these people, you know, doing companies. I want to do it myself too and take a crack at this and maybe you know, do this in parallel with, with doing my PhD. So if you had the opportunity of giving yourself, that younger self, one piece of advice before launching a company, what would that be and why, given, given what you know now? I think the advice would definitely be to, because you, you, it took me 11 years to, before I got an exit in Fishman. Now I've been uh, in TIFIC, I've been with Fishman for seven years. The advice would be to, go with something that you personally strongly feel for. That wasn't really the case in the first one. Come on, this is tech support. It, it's not like, oh, oh, I want to solve the word, the, all the word tech support problem. This, that's not, nothing that I'm personally passionate about. Uh, is, was it a good business proposition? Yes, it was a good business proposition, but it wasn't something that, that personally made me passionate which makes it really, really hard because in the first company, Tiffic, I had two near-death experiences. Luckily, we haven't had any near-death experience at that fish yet. But, but if you have a passion, I think it's much because running a company as a founder, it's always a roller coaster. Even if, even look at the most successful companies in the world, most of them, they have had near-death experiences. And if you truly believe in what you do, if you're at the personal level, Making money is not, it's not an end game. It's actually doing something that you're passionate about. It makes it a lot more easier than in, in the bad days in the office because there will be a lot of bad days in the office. Trust, trust me on that. So, and it's much easier to overcome these, these bad days if, if you're actually passionate about what you're doing. And also if you can share it with people that share your passion. So bring in people, bring in co-founders. You don't, yes, it looks nice to have 100% on the cap table. But I don't think that that it's much better if you if you have a couple of co-founders and you can share the bad days together, doing something that you're passionate about. A hundred percent, and as they say, it's better to have one percent of a billion than a hundred percent of nothing. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, good stuff. So, Johan, thank you so much uh, for the people that are listening. You know, that want to reach out and say hi. What is what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, the best is. Uh, you can send me an email to uh, my first name, Jawan, J-O-H-A-N, at fishbrain.com. That's the easiest way to reach me. 
Amazing. Well, Johan, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thanks a lot for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.